This podcast is produced and issued by Morningstar Investment Management, LLC, a registered investment advisor and subsidiary of Morningstar, Inc. The content is intended for U.S. audiences only. Individuals featured in this podcast are employed by Morningstar, Inc. and its subsidiaries. This includes, but is not limited to, Morningstar Investment Management, LLC and Morningstar Research Services, LLC. Morningstar Investment Management and Morningstar Research Services are registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Stay tuned for additional important disclosure information at the end of this episode. Global stock and bond markets posted broad gains in the second quarter as the economic reopening gathered pace. The Morningstar U.S. Market Index ended the second quarter up 8.4%, adding to a 6% return posted in the first quarter and is up over 100% since the March 2020 lows. With stocks reaching new highs and companies borrowing at historically low rates, broad markets offer limited upside. So how should investors position their portfolios in face of that? This is our topic today on Simple But Not Easy. I'm Philip Strail, Global Head of Research at Morningstar Investment Management. And here to discuss our latest investment views is Ed Fain, Head of Research for Europe, the Middle East and Africa at Morningstar Investment Management Europe Limited, which is an FCA regulated firm. Ed. Thank you for being here. Uh, it's great to be here. Thanks, Philip. Also joining our conversation today is Tyler Dan. He's the head of research for the Americas region. Tyler, thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Phil. Great to be here. Tyler, let's start with you. We've seen a sharp recovery in asset prices since last year, fueled by economic stimulus, broad availability of vaccinations, and a reopening of the economy. Can you set the stage for us and discuss some of the key developments that impacted asset markets over the first half of 2021? Sure, Phil. So I think that what we've seen is a tug of war. The tug of war was really between positive news about a strongly rebounding economy, augmented by supportive fiscal policy, and then secondly, the risks of the reality of higher inflation and speculation, I think, that people were making about the future of interest rates and how those might rise in the future with sustained inflation. So that tug of war is really what happened in the quarter where you had a really strong quarter on the surface, but towards the end of it, you had growth stocks begin to outperform value stocks. And that showed potentially some concerns over the interest rate level. And those concerns led people to potentially get more involved with stable growing companies And so the value over growth outperformance reversed a bit in June. I thought that was pretty notable. Another thing I thought that was interesting was how energy continued to be strong, even with these value growth dynamics and stable elements um, persisting. Energy was up sharply during the quarter, along with oil prices. And I thought that that reflected the strength of the economy as well as those concerns over inflation. So what seemed to be the bubbling up of inflationary fears actually was part and parcel with the rise in energy prices. So we have had energy stocks displaying strength over multiple time periods, heading back to the cyclical trough in March of 2020. Great. And there's a big focus on the Federal Reserve and the exit plans. There's some news around that that shaped the course of the market performance as well when we think about value and growth stock performance. Maybe, Ed, can you outline some of the the recent news there in terms of the Fed's exit plans and how that affected fixed income markets in particular? 
Yeah, happy to, um, Philip. I guess to Tyler's point, you know, it, it's all part of that tug of war. We had such a hard stop, you know, with COVID that it really sort of allowed some unthinkable thoughts in uh, monetary policy circles, in central banks, in treasuries. And we, you know, we really saw concerted action on both the monetary and fiscal side, as we all know. And, you know, to a large extent, you know, that is counted as having been really pretty successful in removing some of the potential scarring or permanent damage to the productive capacity of economies, you know, as we move through a period where people were forced to um, sort of remain in place, stay at home, etc. And, you know, with the rollout of vaccines and actually a pretty successful looking rollout of vaccines, pretty successful efficacy uh, in terms of managing hospitalizations, etc. We really saw, you know, economies starting to come back into shape, which then raised fears, raised questions amongst participants about was therefore the level of stimulus that we'd seen, you know, it might have been inappropriate in the case of a hard stop, but to the extent that we were going to see, you know, positive outcomes, synchronized growth, you know, forced synchronized growth as the world came out of these measures around the world, you know, was that, how would that interact with, you know, the levels of debt that have been taken on, the levels of stimulus, and, you know, that fed through increasingly to some worries about inflation. That said, really looking at it, the um, central banks around the world, in particular looking at the Federal Reserve, you know, where actually the US has been the economy that's really stood apart from you know, most other um, actors in terms of really the size of the stimulus. And partly that's because of, you know, lack of automatic stabilizers in the way they run things. But nonetheless, we saw really pretty large numbers in terms of percentages of GDP and further extensions, obviously, with the Biden administration coming in. That said, you know, when the Fed, you know, looked at the data, you know, really, they, they felt that actually, firstly, you have huge base effects. So, you know, with the complete stop in activity that we had, inflation rates really just fell through the floor. And so to the extent, even if they're recovering to normal, um, when you're measuring inflation as a year-on-year -year phenomena, um, you know, a significant, that will look like you're seeing a significant rise in inflation, whereas actually all you're doing is recovering from those losses. So a significant part was that, and the Fed alluded to that. Secondly, when, you know, they looked at, uh, you know, where we were seeing the inflation, we were seeing it in areas where we'd seen significant, you know, bottlenecks. Um, so areas that have been really impacted by that lockdown, such as, you know, services, hospitality, but also areas where there were sort of, you know, bottlenecks. So, you know, you're seeing a sudden demand for used cars and there's just not enough supply. And so, you know, you'd see a number of bottlenecks in, in various places. And, you know, that came through in, as Tyler pointed to, in various commodity markets from lumber and right through to sort of microchips, et cetera. But, you know, as far as the Fed's concerned, again, they hadn't necessarily seen this broadening out uh, more generally into sort of broad rises in prices that they would think would be sustained. And part of the reason for that is, you know, they were really just looking at employment and just how much employment had fallen. Now, you know, when you're measuring unemployment, you know, the number often doesn't give you the full picture because if people haven't been looking for work uh, for actually a pretty short time, a matter of weeks, they are not counted anymore as actively looking and therefore they drop out of the employment statistics and aren't 
captured within unemployment. So, you know, the Fed's been looking at a broad measure of employment that also includes those people that are underemployed, you know, in other parts of the world, put on furlough schemes or working, you know, part-time when they didn't want to, and also looking at people uh, who had sort of dropped out of the workforce in this period. And, and really, you know, the Fed is looking at its dual goal of price stability and full employment and its view is you're not really going to see the sort of sustained rise in prices so inflation really pushing away in a sustained way unless actually you know you not only get producers rising prices but actually you have enough tightness in that labor market then for workers therefore to demand higher wages now we are seeing some of that and we have seen uh you know numbers coming out in terms of inflation that rightly have caused questions for the markets. And actually, to some extent, you know, it's difficult to look through uh, causing jitters. That said, you know, Powell, in his latest statement, came out and actually doubled down after the dot plots that come out of the Fed, indicating the research that's coming out of the various federal banks, you know, showed a bit of a liftoff in terms of some of the dots. So, you know, some expectation that we could actually see some rate rises, you know, a little bit earlier than people had considered, maybe late next year, um, through next year and, and into 2023. But actually, um, you know, the Fed sort of came back and Powell, you know, just tried to sort of, you know, make sure that the market understood that the Fed still intended to hold to the new inflationary regime that they put in place, which is a, an average inflation regime. You know, inflation has been under goal for a significant amount of time. And so therefore, as far as the Fed is concerned, in pursuit of the long-term goal of price stability, you can argue for a period of inflation running slightly above a long-term target of, say, 2%. And so, you know, the Fed has said it's going to do that. And the big question is, will the Fed hold? And is that the right thing? And, you know, I think there's a significant amount of uncertainty. It's very inscrutable. Broad brush we still think probably it is the right thing. Broad brush inflation is likely to be transitory. The question is, what does transitory mean? You know, does it mean a very short period of above average inflation? How long does that last? And how much is that likely to perturb markets in the meantime? Or alternatively, does the fact that the Fed really tries to hold lead to inflation just getting out of hand enough that actually the Fed is then forced to raise rates quicker then it would like to, and actually you get to a situation where you choke off a recovery. And so the market, as Tyler said, is caught between this push-pull and is caught between this kind of skillet and charybdis. So the two rocks of inflation and raising rates choking off a recovery at the moment. And so, you know, that's inserting a bit of uncertainty back into proceedings at the current time. What would have to happen for you to be concerned about potential permanency of inflation increases from here on out? What would be the metrics you'd be looking at to assess that? In my view, it all comes down to wages. Okay, look, the question for me, and I think in some ways the question that the Fed is focusing on is, you know, really, there have been some long-term fundamental trends that people point to as having been meaningfully disinflationary, you know. First of those demographics you're seeing, you know, across the majority of developed markets, aging populations, uh, therefore, lower levels of production, higher levels of saving, higher desire for saving. And, and so therefore, this helps sort of to keep rates low and sort of keeping inflation in check. On top of that, you know, you've seen sort of significant technological change, allowing us to satisfy our needs 
for lower prices. And so that has been sort of disinflationary. A big part of that, though, was globalization, you know, China industrializing and, you know, really exporting to the world, allowing, you know, the developed world to import cheap products, which was disinflationary. And at the same time, in order to sort of keep its um, currency competitive, in order to be able to do that, you know, with all the dollars that were coming in from those exports, sort of recycling that by buying, you know, U.S. treasuries, uh, which again kept rates pretty low. So, you know, you've had these pieces in place. And the question that Fed's asking is, what has really changed in those? Um, one thing that could you could argue maybe is changing is, you know, China has gone through a large degree of its industrialization and is moving to a more sort of consumer-led economy and may let the yuan rise. And, you know, you've seen some of the flows into treasuries, therefore, you know, starting to dissipate. So there is a question about whether China starts to sort of export inflation rather than deflation. And, you know, that would be a change. But elsewhere, you know, if you look at technology and if you look at the demographics, and those are sort of large, long-term sort of trends, you know, those broadly haven't changed. And so really what we would need for inflation to pick up is we would need wages to pick up in a meaningful way with these various trends. You've seen the bargaining power of workers really sort of diminished over the last decades, really, since it was really dealt with by, you know, Volcker and the administrations of Thatcher, et cetera, through the 70s and 80s. And so, you know, unionization is much lower, the powers are much lower. So whilst you may get some near-term increase in bargaining power, you know, I think that globalization is still there, it's, especially with the Biden administration coming in. It's not in the level of retreat that it was previously under the, the previous administration. And so, you know, again... We need to wait and see to what extent labor can really renegotiate its wages, which is the kind of thing that allows inflation to be not just a one-off rise in prices, but actually to move into that kind of spiraling territory. You know, when they raise wages, producers want to project their margins, so they raise prices and it goes round and round. Ed, in light of these market trends, um, can you give us an update on what these latest developments mean for our overall assessment for reward for risk? So absolutely. You know, generally what we're looking for is valuation. We run money and we think from a bundle-up perspective. But as you say, it's really important to just really try and understand stepping back the broad brush picture. And so, you know, we've got what we call a you know aggregate reward for risk framework where we're really just trying to just understand, are there excesses in valuations, in investor risk aversion, in capital supply? So really valuations and psychology. And we're just, you know, understand that these things move in cycles and can move to excesses. And we're trying to understand that. And then the final thing we, we tend to look at as well is in the context of those valuations and the psychology, are there fundamental reasons, are there fundamental levels of risk that we should be taking account of that might get in the way of a valuation argument or whatever? Most of the time, the view would be to get out of the way of the valuation-driven process and, and, and not have too strong a view. But if things really move to extremes, then it might be that we would, you know, really be looking at an aggregate level to shift the level of risk that we're taking. So, you know, we tend to look at things on a five-point scale. And I'd say, you know, we're towards the lower end, but we're not at the absolute extreme. So we, you could call that a, a low to medium. We've been roughly there, you know, since January you know, there have been a couple of changes, I think. Um, so, you know, firstly, capital supply. Capital supply was 
what we're really trying to ask there is, is there exuberance that is manifest through excessively open and supplicant markets and therefore just allowing the access of capital too cheaply, too easily? And, you know, that had really moved to what we would call a low. So we'd really seen an awful lot of exuberance coming through markets. If you look at the amount of SPAC issuance that we were seeing, you can look at the uh, number of sort of day one price pops in IPOs that were coming through in the market. You can look at levels of issuance in debt. You know, we were really looking at a pretty excessive behavior. Some of that's actually just dropped off. Um, so it's dropped away from the extremes, you know. And it really is the extremes that we're looking for, you know, when we're sort of making our judgments here. So, you know, I'd say that's moved away from that level, but still, you know, pretty exuberant at the current time. The other thing, you know, moving on, I guess, you know, think about the fundamental risks. Uh, that was the other part of the process when we're looking at it, that we felt there was a meaningful change in the quarter. So actually, we felt it improved to an extent. You know, really, the first thing we're doing is monitoring macroeconomic vulnerabilities. And there certainly are some there, you know, with the levels of debt that have been taken on. You know, these are pretty unusual. That said, you know, we've seen the assumption of these levels of debt across the entirety of the development markets. And, you know, these are issuers of their own currency. Um, and so it's really in comparison with others that the key risks can come in. And, and so there is some cover in the fact that we've seen these movements in unison and therefore Broadbrush, we think some questions about how worrisome that is. In the meantime, the question was therefore, what was the capacity of the authorities to be able to step in and deal with a crisis? And obviously we knew that monetary policy was broadly expended, you know, rates were on the floor. We'd seen massive amounts of quantitative easing. But we did feel that, you know, there was a lot that fiscal authorities could do. Um, and actually, that's what we saw come to pass. So we saw a real improvement in economics on the back of those measures, uh, you know, on the back of the, the stimulus measures with the continuing support of those ongoing stimulus measures at the same time as we saw a lot of, you know, efficacy in terms of vaccines, etc. And so, you know, whilst these are really slower moving, the fundamental risks are a slower moving um, question. We just felt there was fiscal willingness and actually, you know, that had improved the picture. Packages now are moderating, China's slowing, uh, but it's also taking measures to address its slowing. It reduced its reserve requirement rates um, recently. So, you know, we felt broadly things were improving. The key risk, you know, one of the key risks remained vaccines. Uh, the market was really pricing, you know, something approaching a V-shaped recovery. And, you know, with a huge amount of transmission, especially in emerging markets, there was always the risk of just sort of mutations, et cetera. And I think that's what's starting to disturb markets just, you know, as we move through the quarter into the most recent period. Um, Philip, you know, I've talked about capital supply, some of the psychological elements. I've talked about the fundamental risks. I know that you've been looking at the valuation uh, side of things. Uh, would you be prepared to just sort of give a bit of a view on that and some of the research we've been doing around it? Sure. Uh, happy to jump in here. So valuations are a key part of our investment process, and we have different ways of, of assessing that. One of the key metrics that we're utilizing is a, a metric called valuation implied return or VIR. 
And so we track uh, the valuation implied return of 200 plus equity markets globally. And so one way of assessing uh, the valuation of markets is to just look at broad composites. So we look at broad emerging market composite, developed market composite, uh, global sector composites, for example, as a way of, of tracking things. And particularly, you know, going back to uh, December of 2015, when the current iteration of our process incepted, if you look at the valuation implied returns, which is the return available to these asset classes over the next 10 years or so, both within developed markets as well as across global sectors, what we see there is actually the lowest level over that time frame. And so that suggests that what we call the absolute valuation of these assets would be fairly low. If you look at how many developed markets, for example, have a positive spread of their valuation implied return and what we think fair return is, there's actually no markets out there that have that positive spread. So broadly speaking, we think absolute valuations are not attractive today. The challenge is that we look at an opportunity set, we look at a fixed income market that still has very low yields. And so another way of, of looking at valuations is to look at the premium that risk assets or the equity market offers relative to fixed income, relative to bonds. And so we've done a research project in this area uh, recently. So senior economist Francisco Toralba uh, did a long-term study on that. And one thing that he was able to, to tease out in a number of you know, ways of, of looking at that is that actually relative to fixed income, things look less extreme. Uh, so the equity premium of equities relative to bonds uh, that equity premium is actually, depending on the measure, is within normal range. And so as investors, that is a bit of a challenge for us. On the one hand, we know that uh, you know both interest rates as well as absolute valuations of equity markets are not particularly attractive, uh, but then there's not a lot of other places to go, so to speak. Um, one thing I would also you know just caveat here as a thought is the fact that the pricing in the market today is contingent in our view, on the current interest rate and inflation environment. So to the extent that interest rates stay low, to the extent that inflation remains low or kind of stable, and Ed talked about some of the, the recent developments there, you know, some of the valuations can be justified. But if we were to exit the current interest rate or inflation regime, that would have pretty big implications for stock valuations as well. And also the valuations of growth stocks, for example, that tend to be assets that have longer cash flow durations and therefore low interest rates uh, tend to benefit these assets uh, disproportionately. So overall, uh, valuations are not attractive, but if we balance you know, the fact that interest rates are low as well, things are probably not as extreme as they otherwise would be. And so in terms of our conviction there, it's at a, at a low to medium as far as valuations is concerned. Tyler, we started the year with some exuberance among retail investors with sharp price declines in so-called meme stocks like GameStop making headlines. Can you give us an update on what we see in terms of investor sentiment today? Sure. Well, at Morningstar Investment Management, we compile and we track actually a comprehensive global sentiment index that's comprised of over 40 different factors. And our most recent reading of this index, which incorporates data from May, was that sentiment had certainly recovered significantly from March 2020 lows, but was not overly elevated versus historical levels. We're still updating these data for June, but when we examine recent third-party sentiment data, what we find is that with the broad market appreciation during June, the sentiment became a little bit more pronounced in a bullion, but it's not at extreme levels. 
um, you know, we're seeking to employ a contrarian mindset. And so the increase in sentiment would be seen as a bit more of a red flag than we might have seen before. As far as the extremes in the memes, so to speak, um, they would have appeared to have peaked in early June. Bloomberg tracks a basket of some 37 different meme stocks. And on this measure, uh, those stocks were recently over 20% below those highs. And so sentiment with regard to the meme stock seems to have come off the boil a bit. Great. Um, I want to go back to the inflation discussion, Ed. You outlined some of the key developments there. We've seen acceleration in categories like auto and, and housing. You talked about the transitory nature of a lot of these things. Can you speak a little bit about what investors can do to protect their portfolios against inflation and how that, what that means, for example, in the context of pricing within tips, for example, today? Yeah, sure. So I, I think that's the question. You know, where do we see inflation as a base case? What are the uncertainties around that? You know, we've seen a real difference in some of the outcomes in the U.S. versus the world, and certainly the U.S. had by far and away the stronger economy previously, and you know, a lot a lot of stimulus, and 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 actually, we've probably seen more pronounced inflation and the types of inflation where there are some questions about whether it um, could be sustained in the U.S. than we have in most other developed regions. We've seen some inflation in emerging markets, but a large part of that's sort of, you know, kind of been driven by the uptick in commodities that we've seen, so in energy prices and in commodities more generally, where, you know, they tend to have much more to bear on a number of the economies in the emerging markets. Um, but, you know, thinking about the Fed and thinking about market pricing, actually, if you look at, you know, the pricing, um, so we can look at the TIPS markets of the Treasury Inflation Protected uh, Securities markets. And, you know, whilst there are supply demand um, issues and, and some technicals in there, you know, broadly, we can infer from that and infer from looking at, uh, you know, um, swaps prices, et cetera, and get a view of, you know, roughly what the market is pricing in terms of inflation moving forward. And, Actually, the interesting thing has been so far, yes, we've seen a huge amount of news flow around inflation and a lot of chatter. But if you actually look at what the market's been pricing, it's really not so far away from what the Fed has been saying. So, you know, um, we definitely saw inflation premiums rise. So the implied inflation within tips prices rising. And you can look at the market, though. You can break it into sort of, you know, what is the implied level of inflation over maybe the next five years? And what is the level of inflation over the next five years? So you can sort of break that out. And, if, you know, if you'd look at that, you've definitely seen that pricing move ahead of the Fed's 2% target, you know, really pushing, you know, towards the 2.5%, 3%, but really more around the middle there. Um, but actually, if you then looked out at the pricing for the next five years, actually, you know, that it was moderating from there and actually wasn't really too far away from that 2% target. And so I guess where the market has been is that, yes, you know, we are likely to see, uh, you know, inflation pick up and we need to price for that. But it hasn't really been pricing sort of a runaway per se. One of the other things I guess we've seen is, you know, um, and certainly just in the nearer term, you know, as we've got a couple of fears, one about growth sort of coming off, but the other about, you know, that inflation continuing to come through and the potential that that might force the Fed's hand and force rates to rise. You know, you've seen maybe sort of the longer end of yield curves also sort of being a little bit lower. And what you might look at when you're thinking about that is a situation where actually maybe the Fed is you know, forced to actually start moving and raise rates. But to the extent it does raise rates, it 
you know, sits on inflation and maybe affects economies. And the question is, does it go too far? And actually, does that therefore lead to lower inflation and therefore lower rates in the longer term? So, you know, when we're looking at pricing, we're not seeing too much. So it's kind of difficult in terms of, you know, positioning for inflation at the moment that, you know, a lot of the pricing has come into markets. I you can use those vehicles and they would help out to the extent that really inflation really did push and get out of control. And people have been looking at, you know, other areas such as gold and even things like Bitcoin, you know, as a, you know, play on the idea that, you know, inflation, which is really a debasement of fiat currencies, um, you know, could come to pass. But the problem is it's always a question of pricing there. So I, I think it's quite difficult. The way we've been thinking about it, I guess, as much as anything is, there's not much value at the moment. And so to the extent that we're investing in fixed income markets, we've really tried to sort of, I guess, concentrate on default remote areas as spreads in corporate markets, et cetera, have become so tight. You know, they're just priced for perfection. And so even if we are going to see a low rate environment for some time, it's just the opportunity cost of shifting is low. And, and what we have done is offset that, therefore, with, you know, our equity positions and their you know, being more willing to sort of invest into cyclical areas and areas that then would benefit from or would be able to move their pricing, et cetera, and benefit from an uptick in inflation and potentially in rates. Great. I want to now move on from our discussion of broad markets and broad themes to um, more specific opportunities. Our investment team spends a lot of time uncovering the best opportunities across the globe. And Tyler, on the equity side, what are the areas that are currently priced to deliver the best risk-adjusted returns, in our opinion? Yeah, I think the best risk-adjusted returns are against a backdrop, first of all, that is uh, pretty challenging. I mean, we've seen stocks reaching new highs. We've got companies borrowing at historically low rates. So in general, the risk-reward offered by markets remains kind of unappealing on a risk-adjusted absolute level. With that said, based on our research, we continue to be favoring areas that seem to be more cyclical within the market. Things that have a constructive outlook uh, that we have would be within integrated energy, energy infrastructure, as well as banks. Uh, we believe that these areas would have further room to appreciate as the economy continues to recover and demand returns to the economy. They also have less challenging, less demanding valuations. At the same time, what we're doing is we're examining more defensive areas of the market, potentially for opportunities there. These areas would include consumer staples, pharma, maybe even utilities. So more defensive areas, more defensive equity areas that might have some degree of robustness as market conditions potentially become more choppy. And Tyler, Ed just talked about the benefits of being in cyclicals if inflation becomes a concern. Maybe you can expand a little bit on how energy stocks in particular or banks could benefit from such a scenario. Sure. Well, energy companies with inflation would have their ability to price their commodities potentially more stoutly, more strongly. And that would be uh, participatory for them as far as revenue streams and cash flow streams. We also like to look at things from a capital cycle perspective. So within the context of energy, what we've seen is that companies have been spending a lot less money on developing their fields. And so 
what you could envision with a period of higher prices, more stout pricing for the commodities that they produce. So higher revenues would be lower capex. And with lower capex could cause higher free cash flow to accrue to us as shareholders. And so uh, the prospect of higher dividends and maybe also potentially profitable reinvestment into areas such as renewables as demand for long-term oil potentially moderates with environmental initiatives and things like that. But the free cash flow windfall would allow them to pay us now as shareholders and potentially put a down payment on the future as far as developing the business away from oil. So we think there's a really good opportunity there. As far as how banks could benefit, one way that they could benefit is by having a period of significantly higher short-term rates, which allow their investments to earn higher yield on those investments and therefore drive additional profitability as far as that part of their business. And so we think that that could be a potentially favorable outcome from an inflationary mindset. Great. And turning to the fixed income side, Ed, where are the opportunities today within fixed income, understanding that yields are low and and spreads are quite tight still? Yeah, that's right. I think that is the backdrop, Philip. Really, in two words, very little. Um, there's a little bit, uh, but but not too much. To Tyler's point, on the equity side, we're looking at cyclicals, you know, and value areas that have been really out of favor that had valuation on the side and had the potential to benefit from the reflation trade, and so therefore, hopefully, be you know on the right side if we did see an inflationary outcome. But there are concerns around that. And so the reason that we're really looking at defensive pieces on the equity side is just the fact that it's kind of quite hard to find too much on the fixed income side. And so, you know, really, as as I said, you know, yields have been incredibly low. That said, to the extent that the market started to think about the possibility of improved economic growth and, you know, the premium on, on security started to sort of move. One of the things we did see was some curve steepening. So treasury curves getting steeper, which means the long part, you know, longer dated treasury uh, bonds effectively becoming cheaper. And, you know, so they didn't make them cheaper, you know, in absolute terms, we wouldn't really call them cheap, but maybe more attractive just from a portfolio construction point of view. You know, treasuries do still tend to have um, very little or negative correlation to risk markets at times of stress. But they have a low bound. And so when the yield curve was so low, the difficulty was just what could it actually do if you had a problem? To the extent you see some steepening, then there's a little bit more to go for. And, you know, that's maybe, you know, an area that we found a little bit of attraction. Spread assets, on the other hand, they're just so tightly priced. There's just so little room for error in spite of ongoing support or support that's, you know, moving towards coming to an end. But the support that there has been which has helped to maintain asset values. So we could see values being maintained, but you know the risks are just asymmetric and the, the extra pickup is small enough that we find it hard at the current time. I guess the, you know, there is a bit more in, in the emerging markets in particular. So there are two parts of the emerging markets. There are a lot of the smaller areas that you know, need to lend in dollars just because they don't have developed enough local capital markets. There, that's treated as a spread asset alongside things like high yield. And, you know, we've seen those spreads really drive tighter and it's less attractive. On the local currency side, so the big, uh, you know, more quasi, the, the, the markets are moving towards 
develop status over time and therefore issuing bonds in their own currency. We've seen a bit more here. Mainly, I would say, though, just because as more developed, they were able to really act a bit more like developed markets and really cut rates into the crisis and put a lot of measures in place, fiscal measures as well, in similar vein to what we saw in, in other areas. And what that tends to mean is, you know, if you're cutting rates and if there's turbulence, they're foreign currencies, so they're currencies. They're foreign ex- in, so in the foreign exchange terms, their currencies fell and, and became a lot cheaper. And so that was a bit more of interest to us. So we think emerging markets in local currency terms, I'd say more generally as well, you know, the other area that we're spending a bit more time on, therefore, you know, as fixed income in its, you know, local terms isn't so attractive, spending a bit more time on that, on FX, on currencies, just because, you know, that tends to be the shock absorber and you saw some value come out. So um, one of the areas we've been looking at more recently is Turkey. You know, Turkey has a a very turbulent um, history, um, sort of it's being ruled with some elements of diktat by um, President Erdogan, who has been prepared to sort of fire central banking governors who weren't prepared to follow his lead, etc. So there's significant fundamental concerns and very high inflation. But what it has meant is that, you know, um, you know, foreign exchange rates have fallen there. And, you know, just when we look at it optically, you know, we're looking at 40% 40% sort of type undervaluation against, you know, our fair levels, which would still be conservative. That said, we, you know, one would need to really come to terms with the fundamental concerns. And the question is always in these things, what is the pricing of the risk? And so, you know, that's what we're looking at. More generally, I guess, um, you know, we had felt sterling, uh, you know, post-Brexit, sterling fell pretty heavily. And actually we felt that sterling both therefore in terms of its currency and also in terms of the opportunity within its equity markets was looking attractive. But, you know, with, you know, a really good vaccine rollout, maybe less of the immediate concerns coming from Brexit, we've seen sterling appreciate and actually the UK market not doing too badly. And so it's actually been a bright spot, but it's just maybe slightly sort of reduced the attractions of sterling, which was, in our view, one of the most attractive sort of developed market currencies. And the offset to that was also... You know, as we saw the potential for inflation and reflation and uh, improving growth, you know, in some ways the demand for the dollar, which tends to always be a safe haven, uh, waned a little bit as well. And so we actually saw the dollar weaken, you know, against a range of currencies. But in our view, you know, one of the key things there was perhaps to think that actually the dollar vis-a-vis things like GBP, vis-a-vis some other areas was actually, you know, still not desperately attractive, but not in as much of an extreme, not as unattractive as previously. And I guess the last sort of currency that I guess I'd think about would just be the yen. Um, I think, again, with the reflation trade, with sort of move to risk, you know, the yen really has been seen, you know, it has great characteristics, again, like the dollar of doing pretty well, often when, when markets are having difficulties. And so it's been great from a portfolio construction point of view when you're moving through turbulent markets. But with that reflation trade and people putting less of a value on that, you know, um, it's been a bit weaker. And actually, we think the yen is probably now amongst the most attractive of the development currencies. Great. Thank you both for sharing your insights today. And thanks for joining this episode of Simple But Not Easy. Keep an eye out for new episodes coming this summer. In the meantime, you can check out mp.morningstar.com for more investment insights and learn more about the Morningstar managed portfolios. 
Good stuff, guys. Thanks for joining. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of publication. Such opinions are subject to change. No Morningstar entity, including Morningstar Investment Management and Morningstar Research Services, shall be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the content presented. Morningstar makes no representation as of the completeness or accuracy of the information presented. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision. 